Hello and welcome to another episode of Triassic Park. And today we are discussing the rights of King Kong, a very convoluted and confusing mess. To join me on this is a man who is the definition of both of those things, Jason. Hello, Jason. Oh, hello. Hello. I can't wait to talk about the rights to King Kong. Very, very exciting. Of course, of course. And we're also joined by somebody who actually knows the law. Hello, Adam. How's it going? Hi, um, this is legal entertainment, and I don't actually practice in copyright, but I am talking. Get excited, folks. Well, I mean, to be fair, though, you know how to actually read a court document, which mm-hmm. uh, haven't done... Oh, I'm at about 20 books worth of research on King Kong, like, honestly. Um, and uh, let me tell you, people don't. Most people don't. I don't know how to do it. And uh, as we as we kind of go on, um, there's a lot of myths involved in this that uh, need to be broken. Uh, so to, to start, um, the easiest way to start is to kind of give a bit of a background before it was an issue. So basically what happened is we had Kong, King Kong in 1933 and Son of Kong also in 1933. All parties pretty much left that movie thinking they had a control of the rights. Uh, And by all parties, I mean RKO and Marion C. Cooper. Um, They both pretty much thought that they had all of the rights for whatever was to be done with the movies. And for a while, uh, RKO was basically selling the remake rights for, for King Kong. Uh, and to, to use a character or anything like that. And they had a man who was in charge of that, who was Daniel T. O'Shea. And he was he was like the RKO's... So RKO was no longer a official movie studio at this time. It was owned by General Tire. And they just kind of bought RKO for the movie library. And basically, uh, Daniel T. O'Shea was involved with RKO back in the day as a lawyer. And he was retired at this point and was kind of just, you know, just doing this as a favor um, and, and, you know, a pretty big favor to be honest, but he was handling all of the rights discussions for King Kong. And he would pretty much find a, uh, a, somebody who wanted the rights and wanted to use the rights and he would get all the information and then present it to the general tire president who was uh, Thomas O'Neill uh, for, for most of the, the discussions and for everything that is really important to the rights issues. Because the rights did not become a really big issue until King Kong versus Godzilla. Now, <sighs> King Kong versus Godzilla is a very complicated story. But essentially, Willis O'Brien had an idea. Some people uh, incorrectly report that Willis O'Brien thought he owned the rights for King Kong. Uh, From what my reading and from everything I'm looking at, I don't think that's the case. I think he honestly is was just attached to the character and wanted to kind of introduce and do another movie with him. Um, He was attached in the 50s. uh, I think it was like mid 50s. There was a process called Cinerama, and that was uh, headed by. Marion C. Cooper, and what Cinerama basically, it was like a basically uh, a sper- experimental ultra widescreen format 
So it was before like huge lenses and they had to have, uh, if you went into this huge movie theater and you'd have three different projectors all running simultaneously and showing one picture. And they had kind of briefly thrown about the idea of doing King Kong back then in charge of that and Cinerama. And I don't think uh, Cooper went to RKO at all because I don't think he felt like he needed to. And we never really got anything from that because in order to do stop motion, you need to have three cameras, especially in this process, because he wanted to remake King Kong in Cinerama using stop motion with Willis O'Brien. And in order to do that, you needed a very complex uh, system to get the exact frames from one, from all the cameras in in the same order. Because uh, near the tail end of Cinerama, they had finally invented like a huge anamorphic widescreen lens. But in the early days, they literally had to use three cameras and just kind of attach the image. And in order to get them all running at the same time was very complicated. And they had a guy who was doing it. So this version kind of almost got up and running. Uh, but the issue was um, the guy who was kind of mastering this, this idea and this theme, he died. So um, that that was happened. And that was the last time that Willis O'Brien had anything to do with Kong at that time. And again, he was working with Marysen Cooper. So I, it didn't seem like he had any illusions about owning the rights to Kong. Uh, and I think that's a bit of a misnomer that people place upon it. But in this time, in order to make King Kong versus Godzilla, he kind of um, I forget who exactly he met up with. But he 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 pitched the idea and he was recommended to go to John Beck. And now John Beck was uh, was a movie producer and also um, a giant piece of shit because Beck pretty much uh, he got a, a, a deal with uh, O'Shea um, and he pretty much told O'Brien because he, he got the script. So uh, O'Brien wanted to make King Kong uh, versus Prometheus. Um, some versions of the script are King Kong versus Frankenstein. Either way, it is basically like a giant Frankenstein monster uh, fighting King Kong. And that was kind of the plot. And, you know, uh, O'Brien did a full screenplay for this. Uh, actually, sorry. Actually, O'Brien hired a gentleman by the name of George Worthing Yates to turn the pitch into a full screenplay. Um, and he. Uh, oh, OK. OK. So, yeah. So what happened is. O'Brien went to O'Shea because he knew he had the rights. O'Shea said, hey, why don't you team up with like John, John Beck, who's a, a producer and he can help you get this into uh, get this into the theaters if you get any takers and we can work out a deal then. So what happened is Beck went to all of these places um, that were stateside. No interest in the movie. He couldn't sell the movie at all. And then eventually, um, so he would give O'Brien kind of uh, sparse updates during this time, so like with phone calls and everything like that. But he pretty much told uh, Willis O'Brien that the script was dead. And then he started pitching it to foreign countries. So he and as far as Willis O'Brien knew, this is like this is done deal. It's he's. His his uh, his last grasp was to just kind of kind of in the toilet and he wasn't going to get a movie made out of this. But John Beck 
made a deal with Toho Studios, which is Tomiyuki Tanaka, and they made Godzilla King Kong versus Godzilla, which again is coming out. Uh, another version of that is coming out, which is Godzilla versus Kong. They just kind of switch the who is in the lead versus. Um, but it when that movie was released, um, it was uh, it was kind of a surprise to one uh, Willis O'Brien. Um, <laughs> because he found out and then he died shortly afterwards. So he was, uh, it, 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 he, he died really quickly afterwards. And then when Marion Cooper heard about this movie being made, he apparently just like lost his shit. And that is when the first time he sued RKO to try and figure out the rights issues, which, um, Adam, can you can you kind of uh, explain why exactly he was not able to uh, Marion C. Cooper was not able to confirm all of the rights that he actually held? So one of the issues around um, rights holding is the idea of proof of initial uh, concept. Now, obviously, we know that Marion C. Cooper created the character, um, but. You have a lot of issues with at what time was there an agreement over um, who could own and who could produce what with that intellectual property. So when you're selling to a studio, depending on what your contract says, the idea would be that the studio would hold those intellectual copyright. The copyright being the creation and authority over that character, which under the U.S. system would run for 75 years after the death of its creator. However, if you assign or give away those uh, rights in any way, then that would rest with the studio. Now, it still holds that it's the person's life that's measured for the copyright, but sometimes um, they get around that through kind of what's been known as the Disneyfication of copyright, where you have um, a, a series of ways of extending that copyright protection by creating more and more works. Um, so you continue to hold that right over that uh, project. So the problem with Marion Sue Cooper was that he had these confirmation letters from RKO that said he had property in the rights. He slowly started to lose some of that evidence either through neglect or um, just not having um, the documentation. And back then it was uh, usually one party would have a copy of each, but it wasn't like they kept everything separate and said, oh, this is our agreement. Let's introduce this. It was prove to me that this exists or else uh, you're out of luck. Um, and we're going to get to kind of the novelization, which was the one thing that uh, Marion C. Cooper could prove that he still had the copyright over and, uh, and then whether he reissued and went down uh, to continue paying uh, to keep the copyright up to date. Yeah, and and that is actually a, a really good uh, you know a way to swing into the next big debate towards Kong because what happened is uh, that Marion C. Cooper and RKO rights issues were not solved until I believe it was uh, early '80s. Um, I think it was 81 when they finally solved the uh, the ownership and the the that everything that was going on in that. So that is happening in the background, but it is not actually affecting anything uh, up until that is settled. Um, so what happened is, you know, King Kong got versus Godzilla got made. Uh, a lot of people blame Toho on this and throw a lot of shade in Toho. I 
I think it's really, uh, really hard to do because how were they supposed to know everything that went into this script, right? Like it's, uh, they are in Japan. All of this apparently happened in America. So let's chill out on that that, that front. Um, but it really, everything really starts to go to a head and get very crazy towards the 1976 version of Kong. Uh, now, the big rights issues and debates happen in 1975 because, oh my, it's a good thing that you mentioned uh, Disney because basically uh, Michael Eisner is the p- cause for all of this. Michael Eisner ran Disney at the time and uh, what apparently he he saw some type of play. There's a bit of confusion as to what he saw, when he saw it. And what it was that really, truly inspired him. But he wanted to see another version of King Kong made. He apparently, he floated this idea by Paramount. And he also floated this idea by Universal. Both companies, uh, so Paramount uh, and, and D, okay, so Dino De Laurentiis ended up making the movie. But Dino, um, he also claims that he also had the idea on his own. So again, who knows who came up with this idea? It seems pretty likely that Michael Eisner planted all the seeds that would create this huge court battle and just completely destroy everything. Um, but, um, and they both were aware. So they were both meeting with O'Shea and both parties were aware that someone else was interested in the rights but nothing was, they didn't know about each other. So they didn't know each other existed. And what happened is uh, Universal Universal says that they had a handshake deal that pre- and a verbal contract that was like, hey, you have the rights to remake Kong. But here's the thing. Dilo De Laurentiis actually had papers that were signed. Right. Like because he actually went and met with the president of General Tire and actually got the proper paperwork signed to actually remake the movie. And there, it's so funny because reading all of these books is like people try to like put like motivations on people. They're like, oh, it's pretty sure that O'Shea would have liked Universal better. So that's how this all got through. And I'm like, at the end of the day. None of that matters. <laughs> None of it matters. It only matters who actually had the rights. And at the end of the day, it was Dino De Laurentiis. Um, now, where some of the disagreements happen, a New York Magazine article from February 23rd, 1976, titled The Battle for King Kong. Now, Jason. Yes. You, you read this. You read this along with me, correct? Oh, I read this. Yes, I sure um, did. Yes, I, I read it. I I'm, absorbed I'm it through my eyeballs into my brain, where it's slowly becoming some kind of tumor that will likely destroy me from the inside out. Oh, I'm sure. Because uh, let me tell you, this article has the most obnoxious writing. Jason, do you have the article pulled up by chance? Oh, of course I do. This is written by Andrew Tobias. Okay, Andrew Tobias is a... uh, You can go to andrewtobias.com if you'd like to. Don't. Um, (laughs) He's a financial guy. He's a graduate of Harvard. um, And he also, you know, was the 
um, treasure for the DNC f- um, from 1999 until 2017. So um, this just gives you an idea of um, what kind of felon this guy is, right? Um, yep. He's, yep. Um, he's uh, I-, I watched a nice little YouTube video um, from around this era where he basically is talking about another article he wrote where he argues that people – uh, because some people who are um, make $100,000 a year are unable to – because they you know they go out and they have a certain lifestyle. They're unable to uh, maintain that lifestyle that it's just a matter of living within your means and therefore people who make $30,000 a year should be able to as well, um, i.e. burger flippers. You don't get to have your minimum wage raised. Um, so that's who we're dealing with. Okay. Fuck yes, this guy. Yes. Fuck of this guy. This guy. Fuck this guy. Besides this article, but also because uh, of this article. But but definitely because of this article. Because there are some things in this article. <laughs> what? There are some things in this article. Oh there yes. Yep. Faded. Oh yeah. On sorry. a room full of lawyers, the senior partner of a seventy-man Century City law firm, Arthur Groman, is taking the sworn deposition of the chairman of the board of MCA, which owns Universal Pictures. Lou Wasserman, these are very big guns we are talking about. A court stenographer transcribes every word. Did you ever see Godzilla? Yes. Did you ever see Godzilla and King Kong? Yes. Now, what was the option you refer to? A sequel? Well, sequel to the extent King Kong would appear in it. I see. Now, in the original King Kong picture, King Kong dies at the conclusion of the picture. Is that correct? Uh, Yes. Was it Universal's intention not to kill King Kong at the conclusion of the picture? Possibly. If you had killed him again, of course you couldn't very well make a sequel. Now, could you, Mr. Washerman? Got him! Got him! What in the fuck does that have to do with anything? <laughs> so the first oh. thing, I, the first thing that I had that I thought of when I read that is one: it's King Kong versus Godzilla, not Godzilla and King Kong. Yes. So chill the fuck out. Oh god. Um, two: what does this honestly? Uh, I, I, I don't know, Adam. Do you have like, yes. any honest idea what this is even kind of talking about? Yep. Um, so this is uh, so what a deposition is is um, we have discoveries in Canada. In the states, depositions are filmed, and it's a sworn statement that you make prior to going to court. And it's one of the mechanisms for gathering evidence. So your mechanisms would be like disclosure, where you get all the documents that they give you, and then depositions, where someone with some knowledge swears to the truth of what they're about to say, they state what they're about to say. And if you went to court and they, for example, misrepresented something or said something wrong, then you could go, ah, but you said on your deposition on this date, this fact, and now you're changing your opinion. So that tells a judge that you might not be as trustworthy. So when I heard that uh, deposition that you just provided, although they did make it really dramatic for no reason. But um, basically what he's getting at is there's no way that Universal intended to use this creature, uh, the reason being that they killed it in the movie 
And therefore, it would make logical sense that going forward, if they were to use the creature, um, they didn't intend to use that story as a springboard to write another story based on it. And to that, I would say, watch King Kong Lives. You can do it. That movie, yeah. that movie, they give King Kong a fucking heart transplant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could come up with any reason. Also, you could say, well, the remake rights wouldn't be the same as uh, a sequel, the, right? Yeah. Like, you don't but, even have to yeah. end it the same. But anyways, it's very, It's. I thought that was a very weird way to open. Um, it's a weird way to open the article, but I think what he's trying to get at is um, that's the type of question you would use to pin the person in um, by suggesting, at least, that they didn't make... You know, later on, you might say, like, oh, well, you didn't intend to make a sequel. It's pretty clear that they uh, are now making a big deal out of these rights uh, because somebody's come to them with money. But um, they clearly intended to give their rights, you know, forward and then, you know, use the evidence that you have that the rights were transferred. Um, I, mean, I mean, I know this sort of flies in the face of the whole purpose of this <laughs> particular podcast. Um but I sort of think when I'm like reading this stuff about rights and all this, like, who fucking cares? Just make a different big gorilla movie. Don't well, that's the King problem Kong. is it's IP and people care a lot about intellectual property. Well, because... I know because they think there's money attached to that. And pe but if you make they, a great but fucking they... giant gorilla movie, people are gonna go see it. Do you know what I mean? Like that's you know... uh, yes, but I don't not. like. I think one of the things that we really do need to like put into stone like the at this time period especially uh king kong was a name that would sell a lot of, of tickets yeah, no, i get that i get that well i'm just suggesting that if you lose that in court just make the fucking movie and make a slightly smaller budget and make a great movie a whole bunch of people did a whole yeah, yeah. bunch of people did None of them were good, but yes, no, those. Movies but they weren't good movies. You know what I mean? Like that. No, I know, I know, I know. I'm just. My saying. counter would generally be this: um, if you're a studio, you don't care about making art. Yeah, um, generally, that. you care about that for the purpose of like you know Oscar season if you're trying to promote a, like an indie film or other things like that. But you don't really care how good it is. Like it was kind of like the press had an effect on whether people went and saw movies, but generally it was like the spectacle and going and seeing the new blockbuster film. So when it comes to the rights issue here, um, they're basically weighing their options. And I think Andrew's going to get to this, but like you have to figure out how much money can I lose in court and still get to make the movie? And will that movie make it back? Because if you yeah. go into this and fight it, and you lose a bunch of money, your rights might, uh, especially if your company goes bankrupt, uh, they might get bought up for nothing. And now you've lost your rights, you've lost the ability to make the movie. And that's like a big thing for, you know, like when we think about like the Roger Corman version of like Fantastic Four was made just to hold on to the rights. Like they do this where they make these movies that are low budget and, and they just sit on the property because someone will come along and want to buy that name. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I totally, I totally get that. I, co I totally understand the business aspect of it. It just makes me sit back and go, I hate all these fucking people, right? Michael Eisner is the downfall of fucking uh, film, right? Like, um, there's, you know, he's the one that lights the flame that creates the Disneyfication and 
owns every fucking property under the sun and is just churning out IP after IP after IP and everyone fucking just wants lunchboxes and fucking, you know, um, they're masked heroes and don't give a shit about whether anything's quality or not, whether as long as they're, you know, imaginary yeah. best friends are in it that they've known forever, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, that's all I'm saying. No, I get it. And, I, and and as I said, I know this sort of flies in the face of the purpose, it, you know, informationally about this podcast, um, but I can't sit quietly well, and just say, fuck all these people, you know? No, I mean, no, I, I again, like, I think uh, at the end of the day, uh, I think all of us would come down on the artist side, right? Like Marion C. Cooper, right? Like Ernest B. Soldshack, Ruth, Ruth Rose, um, you know, the OB. people who actually... Oh, yeah. yeah, Willis O'Brien, the people mm -hmm. who actually uh, created the the project is who obviously we kind of think would uh, should own it, at least in my opinion. I don't know. Maybe maybe Adam is uh, all for Din Disney and it's just like, yeah, come on, Michael Eisner, buy me. I um I sat down to watch um, OG King Kong again today um, and just like happened to my four year olds happened to come in. Um, my four year olds. Right. And were absolutely captivated from the beginning to the end. A black and white film from the mid '30s. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean it, it holds it, up. It yeah, is fucking incredible. Even the special effects right. today are incredible. Um, it's just so captivating and heart pounding. You know, as soon as they get on Skull Island from the beginning to the end, um, that has nothing to do with IP. I, I'm, it just has to do with the the um, genius of Willis O'Brien. And the power of the right. film, you know. Yeah, um, and the, but but that that is what kind of drove the IP, right? So they mm -hmm. are a link. But you it's can't one of those replicate where it's that. Like, is my point? Like, just taking the Kong well, name gets some additional money, but it doesn't drive um, the the long term money making capability of something like King Kong. You know what I mean? Well, I think we can probably talk about like the regurge. Like, obviously, at this point, like owning any amount of ip you will remake and remake even if the movie wasn't a hit the first time because you have a better option of receiving money on that your bet is better and it's easier to get more people to invest in your film and more people to uh you know green light things if you say oh this is a king kong movie well then if i'm a producer i can go oh i know what that is and then they can make it now you know, whether or not, like, if you said I'm I'm making a sequel to Edward Scissorhands, okay? You're more likely to buy that than if I said I'm making uh, a new movie, obviously called um, uh, Tom Knife Fingers. And, <laughs> in fact, they might sue you for Tom Knife Fingers because it dilutes the value of the IP because you'd go, okay. oh, someone made a dumb parody of Edward oh. Scissorhands and this Hello. is harming our yeah. ability to make it. You're 100% right, and we're putting this thing back on the rails, because guess what? That happened. That mm -hmm. happened. In 19, 1976 was the birthplace for Kong exploitation, because, well, okay, technically Konga was, was released in the 60s, but a whole slew of movies got released. You had Ape, you had Queen Kong, you had Mighty Pekin Man. You've had Yeti, Giant of the 20th Century. You have so many of these movies that were made. Roger Corman was planning one. Mario Bava was planning one. There are so many movies in this period because the rights were in flux. Because the rights were in flux. And what happened is some of those movies got buried for years. Queen Kong, a terrible, 
a terrible movie. But it got buried for years because somebody threatened to sue them when the rights were figured out and before the movie, before the final film came out, and they weren't able to release that terrible, terrible movie. We'll eventually talk about it. But another thing that's important to talk about in this in this thing when we're talking about um, the idea of of De Laurentiis versus Universal, right? Paramount is the one disp- distributing the movie, but Dino is the one who has all the money in the movie. And as such, there's a big possibility that Universal, if they really wanted to, could drag it out long enough that he would lose his money. And I'm pretty sure that was really what the purpose of a lot of these lawsuits were, um, in that they pretty much wanted to completely squash Dino. And again, let's talk about it realistically. Like, Dino is an outsider. Like, Dino De Laurentiis is coming from Italy. Um, He is coming into the American film market. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Universal, there's a bit of racism. Uh, I would say a lot of racism, even in this article. Uh, I, I think that one of the things that I would be really interested to talk about is how. OK, so this is I guess this is opinion. This is an opinion for you guys. Mm-hmm. If you have to if you're talking to somebody with a, a heavy accent, how do you write that quote? Do you write that quote phonetically or you just cut, cut or do you just explain what accent was being used because well because in in the this one especially in this article there are some ways that they they quote Dilo De Laurentiis which to me veer more on phrases than being anything useful and again I think that could also be as to what quotes you're pulling and how you're trying to make it look like it I'm not sure how you quote it what's the point of quoting it in the accent unless you're intentionally being racist like i don't see the point in doing that ever um unless you're trying to frame him as somebody who's not an american right like i mean i I don't i don't want to yeah i I don't want to say you know this doesn't come from a, a place of prejudice it would be a place possibly of uh defamation if you misquote him or, you know, misrepresent what he said. So it could be that they were trying to pull literally what he said. Um, if they're still misrepresenting and using the accent, then I would agree with you. Good discussion to, to have, because I, yes. I think I think I think what what maybe shapes the more, uh, I, I would say, more racist tinges of this article is that the way they introduce Dino himself. Right. And the way they talk about him and the way the quote is introduced, which is. They they use uh, they use terms that are that are kind of like very very much to I I would feel kind of d- discredit him a little bit um and and the way that they're treating him the way they're framing some of that stuff can you can, can you can I mean just I, I think before we move away from racism um one of the ways they introduce him is the story about how he who he is elected to bring in um, to play <sighs> okay. Kong so I think we have to talk about this can I read we, this we, Part of the article. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, because I think also Adam sort of needs to hear this. Uh, <clears throat> mm-hmm. A story appears in Variety. Justified or not, this is quote, it begins, Dino De Laurentiis has created a strong and sometimes angry oppression among minority actors here that he is looking for an, quote, ape-like black actor to play the title role in King Kong. Whatever the intent... It's indisputed that a number of black males 
were summoned to De Laurentiis' studio last week, where they were introduced to Dino's son, Frederico, and asked to jump around and hope, dot, 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 end quote. Several weeks later, time sets the record straight. Originally, De Laurentiis planned to use a man in an ape suit for the close-ups of Kong. But because of the uproar, now he will use a 2,040-foot mechanical ape throughout. Wrong. In addition to the mechanical Kong, he is using three black men in ape suits, complete with huge brown contact lenses. Three, because each is adept at a different kind of ape-like movement. Okay, so let's talk about this in particular. Okay, what is accurate, what is not? Okay, one. The, there are two men who played Kong in in the suit. They used uh, two men in the suits, Rick Baker and Will Shepard, both of whom were white. So that so that are the 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 end part of that article is uh, is is a lie. It's just a straight up disinformation. Um, the first part though is accurate, but it it, it is actually more put onto uh, Mario. Chiari, who was one of the men in the effects department that had that uh, very racist idea that uh, the 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 structures would already the muscle structure would always already be there. And again, I think so. One of the things about that that I that I think is really something to discuss. Uh, hello, this is uh, Future Andrew just popping in to uh, kind of issue some corrections for some stuff that I am about to say. Uh, I go in a little bit hard on Adam as far as asking about his sources for the book uh, and what he got the information from in regards to Nganji, uh, which is a very racist film in the 30s, uh, and its inspiration for Kong. And um, he, uh, afterwards, we kind of were chatting, and he actually kind of pulled up some of his sources. He just didn't have them off the top of his hand. I mean, who can expect that from somebody, uh, to be honest? Uh, And uh, he was specifically mentioning horror noir, which is blacks in American horror films from the 1890s to present. And that's written by Robin R. Means Coleman. Now, this is a black writer writing about black issues. And as such, uh, everything that she says, especially in regards to King Kong, is uh, way more important to read and to uh, look at than um, some of the stuff that I've been talking to. Uh, I had not actually read this book. This book had kind of been on my uh, to-read list for a while, but I didn't even think about it for Kong, and I I definitely should. So uh, she mainly covered it in the uh, second chapter of the book, which is called Jungle Fever, A Horror Romance, the 1930s. So that, yeah, so that's a very important read. Make sure you uh, do read that and talk, and it really kind of goes about and talks about uh, a lot of the cultural implications and the ways that uh, many people have read the film, and uh, her read is much more important than someone like my read, or Adam's read, or Jason read, as we are all white men. The Nganji references and the Nganji influence of King Kong is actually kind of proven with one of the sources that she uses. So Robin R. Means Coleman uh, references a book that I actually had no uh, recollection of and was not even on my list, which is a book called Tracking King Kong, a Hollywood icon in world culture, which is written by Cynthia Erb. Uh, Now, I had not actually heard of this one. Uh, It was originally published in 1998. And the 
the book does have a, a number of Nganji references to it. Um, so for one, uh, I'm going to read a few paragraphs of that and uh, just to kind of, uh, you know, talk about what the possible influences of Nganji was upon Kant. Although Cooper understandably insisted on the originality of his work, mainly by stressing the novel concept of a gigantic ape falling for a woman, Archeo's legal department initially approached the story as more or less a compilation of various narrative and genre devices culled from other popular texts of the period. Rather than worrying about artistic value, Selznick and the attorneys were concerned about whether or not the script posed a possible case of copyright infringement. They discussed the beast in relation to such texts as Nganji, Congo Pictures, 1930, a film Selznick mentioned but admitted he had never seen, Murders in the Rue Morgue, Robert Flory, 1932, and even Jules Byrne's novel, Journey to the Center of the Earth. So that was the first reference to Nganji, which uh, when I first read that, I was like, okay, uh, doesn't seem like there has anything to do with Kong. And then I get to the next one. And it seems like where the uh, the differences between um, where we were coming from, when that would be Jason, Jason and I, and uh, where Adam was coming from, kind of boils down to to this specific thing in that mainly it seems like the position that i was coming from and also the position that jason was coming from was to be focusing mainly on marion c cooper ernest p soltzak ruth rose and willis o'brien now there are a lot of other people involved in the script writing process and that is kind of where some of the nganji references comes in uh, and a very important version of that is is, is found in the Creelman draft, uh, and and this is one of the many drafts uh, of King Kong, and in that uh, we're going to read the, another section from the aforementioned book. King Kong's links to jungle tradition thus resulted in part in part from the established reputation of the filmmakers. But this genre frame also developed from a coincidence between King Kong's release date and a cycle of jungle films that grew up in the wake of two MGM jungle hits, both directed by W.S. Van Dyke, Trader Horn, 1931, and Tarzan the Ape Man, 1932. Creelman scripts for King Kong occasionally allude to popular jungle films of the day. In the June draft, Denham enlightens Englehorn and Driscoll about Kong's existence by exclaiming, They, the native, worship this trick animal like a god. Boy, when we shoot that, they'll boil down in Ganji and Trader Horn for the celluloid. So it does seem like that is uh, where the biggest influence of Nganji comes and its influence with Kong, in that it did actually appear in one of the drafts, the Creelman draft. Um, yes, so anyway, so th there are, uh, uh, one, this led to a whole new book that I'm going to read that's going to make our King Kong episode better, and uh, also it had uh, some very important reading, especially if you're looking for a more nuanced and in-depth opinion about how Kong relates uh, relates to black America and the internal racism that can be uh, read from King Kong 1933. 
And again, uh, that would be Horror Noir, Blacks and American Horror Films from the 1890s to present by Robin R. Means Coleman. Uh, I will link both that and Tracking King Kong in the uh, show notes below. Um, so yeah, so it doesn't seem like Nganji was the reason Kong was made, but it was referenced in the film and was one of the things that David O. Selznick reached for in terms of making sure it was not a copyright violation of. So there you go. Is that there's been a lot of racist ideology attached to Kong um, when they kind of try to say, oh, King Kong represents uh, black people. I've They said that in the movie Inglorious Black Bastards, they said that, right? And that is a, a mainstream movie that was seen by millions of people and was also made by Tarantino. <laughs> I think, okay, so I think that you can have a twinning of the two things, which is you have people reacting and overreacting about the character and what it represents, but then you can also have historically people making representations. And then you could also have people reading representations where there wasn't one intended. Now, I will say, like in the initial drafting of Kong, whether it was Marion C. Cooper's idea or not, um, the studio greenlit part of the picture because of Ngaji, uh, which is a horrific racist Ooh, film. Where did you uh, find that, though? Where did you find that? You can find that in several of the like books that go through the history of Kong, is that the studio greenlit the picture because of how much Ngaji grossed. Well, but I think Adam's talking about the studio greenlit, right? We know, if you do enough reading on Kong and Marion C. Cooper, you know that that's not what inspired Kong. No, that's not necessarily what inspired his writing. The studio didn't greenlight the movie until they actually saw it being made. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. The reason they, they, they had to literally see test footage, like they had to make like uh, about like 30 to 40 minutes. Of, well, sorry, I think it's probably about 10 to 15 minutes of the movie before they could get any funding for it. Because at this point, um, these type of movies uh, were kind of dead. Um, yeah, they had they had the um, they had the uh, log scene where he rolled, runs the log and the T-Rex yeah. in the Kong scene um, already done. Um, so we know that's what they were like, mm-hmm. oh shit, yeah. But that doesn't that doesn't preclude what Adam said, which is some fucking slimy network or exec is like, wow, yeah, we don't they love it's this. True. You know, that's it's true. And what I will say is I think that whether or not Dino De Laurentiis, um, you know, or whomever was the one that made a decision about who how they were going to cast King Kong is being used, whether it's accurate or not, as a weapon to say De Laurentiis was trying to do something uh, exploitative with this film, and they're using it in the article in a way to discredit him. So whether or not he actually did take that position or there was some history on the set where there was some casting issues with that. There was a Variety article calling for it. So all of the criticism for that is wholly justified, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's wholly justified. Um, And I'm sure Gilo Rex has had to approve that casting decision at some point. But uh, uh, let's not gloss over the fact that obviously the natives in King Kong are pretty racist. There's so well, like, and so is Charlie the Cook, right? Yes, like there's all yeah. of these. There, I mean, there's there's a Charlie ton the Cook. Of, they try to make him a person, like a he's human still, being. It's still racist, but yes, though. no, no, yeah, but, for sure. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. No, yeah, no, no. Sure. I know. I'm just like there's plenty of racism in mm-hmm. Kong. Um, so in, let's not. 
And yeah. the whole film is misogynistic by its very nature, right? I mean, the entire concept of the film is men <laughs> men can't control themselves around women, right? And then at the end, the basically the most famous line is somehow this is a woman's fault. Like that's basically <laughs> they drug the giant fucking ape, bring it to New York, it destroys everyone, and then at the end the guy's like, Well, this is a woman's fault. Like that's the idea <laughs> Well of they the film. <laughs> they changed it in the in the remake in an interesting way because of that. Um but yeah, it is I mean, right out of the gate, the first line in the movie is a screen that says ancient Arabic proverb they made up. Yeah, they totally make it up. They totally made it up. There's like, there's like nothing. Uh, there's, there's nothing. Ancient there. Arabic property, Beauty and the Beast. Like what? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, I I think that obviously, like writing that, if it's inaccurate, that gives you grounds for um, someone to bring a. All, all these dudes. Like a libel. I don't know about Willis. Well, but, here's, but like Marion C. Cooper issues... and Shuzdek are, you know, big game hunting, fucking like white. Colonial, yeah, you but, know? You but know I mean? like, okay, um, yeah, so I think he's talking about the 76 Kong. No, I'm oh, talking okay. about the article. Um, yeah, in the article. article, yeah, that would be grounds to libel if they're misrepresenting what Dear Laurentis's hiring would eventually become. Now, you know, well, they can get around that and say there's some element of truth in it, uh, because at some point they were planning to hire some people and that could be connected to him but i think that generally if, if you are misrepresenting in media and it causes harm which this could if it had financially affected de Laurentiis, uh from the publishing of this article yeah no that's true um w one of the things is like it's kind of hard because um so when they said that like de Laurentiis is now saying he's using a giant robot kong he used that in all of the marketing there henceforth, even in the movie, th what they say is with special help from Rick Baker and uh, Rick Baker did pretty much all of that, right? Like it, it was him and Carlo Rambaldi who really kind of uh, spearheaded the effects. And most of them, if not, I think it would be like about 95% of the scenes in Kong 76 are actually a man in the suit, but it's Rick Baker and his the one other the one other man um but uh regardless i think i think i think in that case uh de Laurentiis himself kind of muddied the waters by lying as well like how, about how much they would be featuring this uh this person uh but anyways so that well, well before we go on i just um i think reading the next paragraph i think gives greater insight as to what the intention of this is um beyond um whether that part is true or not like it's obvious this entire piece is designed to make the dino look bad i think right right um so the I next so. the next paragraph is it is 84 degrees and sunny in beverly hills and one or two shriveled christmas trees have yet to be carried away happy king kong new year i'm sitting at the counter of the beverly hills hotel coffee shop reading the dolorentes king kong screenplay by lorenzo semple jr wondering whether a 16 million plus production budget can be supported by lines like you goddamn chauvinist pig ape, what are you waiting for? If you're going to eat me, eat me. So, like, clearly the intention of this is to be like, this movie's going to be dog shit. Like, that's the, the intent of this yeah, article. Yeah, right? definitely. 
Yeah. So, um, so basically, uh, uh, you know, we've kind of gotten off in a little bit of the tracks mm-hmm. off of the rights issues. Um, yep. so, yeah, sorry about that. Um, no, 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 it's fine. This is all discussions that need to happen, uh, especially, especially with some of these ideas and some of these things. Um, but, um, it seems like, uh, the, the things that happened here was, uh, basically it was basically a match between De Laurentiis and Universal from who could start filming first. Because once they once one of them had something filmed, it would be too costly to kind of uh, com- try to make another one and try to release it at the same time. Um, so uh, Legend of King Kong was the one Universal was planning, and they were going to do it as like a perioded piece. Um, and the way they finally got around to this decision to also make King Kong was because some part of the original Kong novelization did enter the public domain. Now, one of the things in regards to this is there is some information um, that I've, that I've seen repeated recently. And I kind of think that this article is the origin of what, according to the courts and according to some of the some of the things that we found, uh, which I'll kind of get from Adam and get that talk from Adam, um, is the fact that there is a misconception that the part of King Kong that is in the public domain is the part that was published in 1933 as the mystery magazine portion of King Kong. Now the mystery magazine portion of King Kong is explained thusly. So when they first were making King Kong, they wanted to do a thing where they would release a novelization beforehand and uh, in 1932 and then they would later on they would release the the movie and they would use uh the a, a famous writer to get the information and to get everything out uh and get bum up uh publicity and get people interested uh and this was not really done much at the time uh and they wanted to go with a man by the name of edgar wallace Edgar Wallace was a very famous mystery writer at the time. And basically, uh, um, he was brought on to Kong. Uh, he was brought on to Kong. He wrote one draft of Kong. Uh, it was a very different draft, but there is, there is a, a lot. We'll, we'll talk about that when we talk about the making of Kong to get more into what type of impact he had on Kong. Because he I, love that. Had... I love that draft, by the way. It's so cool. It's a very weird draft. It's, it's a pretty cool. crazy draft. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a it's a wild. Um, but what happened is Edgar Wallace. Uh, Edgar Wallace was like a, again a famous mystery author, and basically there was a magazine called Mystery Magazine that pretty much got all of his works published in it at one point. Um, and uh, Marion Cooper pretty much brought him on to kind of write the script for Kong, and then he wanted to go, "Hey, this is awesome." We can basically like sell the movie on this dude's name a little bit and get a little bit of extra press and extra publicity because you already know places that'll want his work. Well, unfortunately, 
he died from pneumonia in 1932 and before the film got shot and before he could do any revisions. And he did not write the uh, the novelization. The novelization was actually written by a man named Delos Lovelace. Um, and uh, what happened was when the movie was released, they printed uh, a, a very small, ver- like a very short version of king kong it was very abridged into mystery magazine uh and when that version of mystery magazine got released it was only under edgar wallace's name basically because they wanted to sell the the rights and put him onto the rights and you will see edgar wallace pop up in you know in the 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 original credits of kong and everything like that uh it's always funny because what will happen is (laughs) Marion C. Cooper later in life said, pretty much said, Edgar Wallace didn't write a damn word of that movie, but I told him I would give him credit, so I gave him credit. You know, he had, he had, and and this is one of the, the issues with um, Cooper. Um, he's a he was a very cantankerous man at that point, and um, given the fact that all this legal stuff was happening, uh, I think that was also like a way to uh, kind of. Uh, probably try to solidify more his own stamp on the on the work because it did yeah. seem like Edgar Wallace had, a, had the first half of that draft is very different but the last half of that draft does have a lot in common with the final picture of Kong uh also uh let's be real uh Marion C. Cooper was just trying to make extra money off of the, off of Edgar can, Wallace right like I don't think can, he was can like, I can I add to that Yes, of course. Um, I read the uh, the part on this in, in the King Kong book, the Ray Morton book, um, which is really great. Um, and in there, he says that, and I didn't see this anywhere else, but maybe you've seen it other places, Andrew, um, that he hired um, Edgar Wallace because he was um, famously quick at writing, right? So the idea was, and he was yep. known. So he hired Edgar Wallace to write the novel first and publish it. So therefore, he could turn around and say this is based on an Edgar Wallace novel, right? Yeah. So that tells me that if he was already writing on the script, that he probably wrote the novel already, too, whether it was published or not. No, no. no. um, So basically, um, they actually have a lot of Wallace's uh, original, um, you know, journals. He was very, he's very studious in terms of keeping journals. He did. He did not have anything to do with the novelization. It doesn't. No, seem no. Like I'm not it. saying it got published. I'm saying that I'm sure he did work around the novel if he was hired right. to do the novel first, and therefore it seems unlikely that he wouldn't have anything to do with what happened. You know what I mean? That's all I'm saying. Right. I'm not saying he wrote yeah. the novelization. I'm saying no. if you hire him to write the novel first that you're going to publish, I'm sure he did a bunch of fucking work that ended up in this. And if you read that original screenplay, yeah, it's very different, but. There's a lot of stuff there too that's carried over to the, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the film. Exactly, exactly. There's a there there's a lot, and uh, I think uh, his impact should not be kind of just kind of thrown away. Um, but yeah, so he died tragically, but and as such, he did not end up writing the novelization. But that is where the origins of that mystery magazine version. So that mystery magazine was originally published in 1933. It has been published, republished in full in a book. Uh, and that book 
uh, was like movie monsters. Uh, I tried to buy it and um, they lost it. They didn't know where it was. Oh. So I bought it. And then the company I tried to buy it from was like, hey, uh, I'm sorry. We listed this by mistake. We don't know where this is. Much and I was like, like Edgar Wallace's credit is lost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and what happened is um, there was um, another version of that story reprinted, but that it was reprinted in Fabus Monsters of Filmland in the uh, in the seventy issues. Uh, like it was, I think it was like seventy two to seventy four or something like that. I probably have the numbers wrong, but in that version, it was rewritten to add a little bit of flair because it was super truncated. That mystery magazine one was super truncated, so much so that it didn't even have dinosaurs. Wow. So what I'm saying is it's it we is, can't talk about it because it wouldn't meet the requirements of the show. <laughs> oh, uh, by the way, yeah, I, I stretch the requirements of this show. <laughs> uh, um, I might as well call me Stretch Armstrong. There's nothing mm-hmm. I won't cover. Fucking I'll, I'll cover uh, Kramer versus Kramer next. Um, <laughs> Not uh, a versus. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Dustin Hoffman the is a monster. Great. Dustin Hoffman is a monster. So I yeah. think it does. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, but but basically, uh, in the end of this article, it is the only place um, where I've seen this idea that the uh, Universal was trying to go, hey, King Kong, uh, the King Kong version that was done in Mystery Magazine was what had uh, run out of copyright and become public domain. Mm-hmm. This was then quoted in uh, King Kong Cometh by a gentleman by the name of John Glutt, who is a, a really, really good uh, Kong historian. And I'm pretty sure this is where he got this information from and then this information was then then his information was then quoted in the new book um that came out last year called kong unmade the lost films of skull island so i'm pretty sure that the idea that this version was the one that was in public domain came from this uh idea but now we go to Adam, because I, I, Adam, what do you, what were you able to dig up in far as far as the courts go, as to what exactly is in public domain? So this is the real um, problem with doing um, like a legal analysis in this way is that um, there are different levels of court, and whether or not a court decision is reported or not is dependent on the level of court, whether or not they're going to report certain decisions. A judge can determine if they wish to report a decision. So, for example, if you had a traffic ticket, that decision by a judge is usually given orally, and they wouldn't go, I'm now going to write that down for other people. Um, If you're a lawyer, you can request the decision is written down, um, or... The judge could say, I'd like to reserve and write my decision, and this oral decision I'm about to give, so the thing that they say in court will be the substance or the thing that they've decided, and then they will go fix it up and make it look nice and use all the legal precedents they want to use, you know, that type of thing. So the issue with 
finding the 76th decision um, that deals with this is that it's a district court decision, and so it wasn't reported. So everything you get is either from the Court of Appeal in 76, which dismissed um, the attempt to further uh, appeal that decision. So that would be um, RKO saying, well, we'd like to challenge this and going forward and, and making that application and being denied um, that it wasn't in the public uh, domain. And so we don't know what exactly the judge said. So what likely this person is saying is one of the sources that created King Kong must have uh, been in the public domain because the judge was quoted as saying that King Kong entered the public domain um, based on the novelization of the story. And so when they said um, that the 1933 novel um, what they probably actually meant is the, the 1932 novel, because, again, it's difficult for the it's difficult to determine exactly what was said in the court. But what we know is that it's the novelization specifically that they said was in the public domain. And most of my research, and this is how esoteric all of this is, uh, had to come from a different court case explaining how these things happened. And that's Universal City Studios, Inc., Plaintiff Appellant Cross Appeal uh, versus Nintendo. So that was a case that happened way later in 86, when uh, Universal tried to sue Nintendo to stop them from uh, producing the game uh, Donkey Kong. Wow. Um, yes. So what makes this so interesting is they go through a chronological history of all the decisions that were made. Um, and in August 1975, Universal filed their suit in the federal district court in California. They were trying to get a declaration that the copyright had lapsed. So Universal was the one that was trying to say, you don't have copyright, so you can't assert that we're acting against your copyright, and that the story was in the public domain. Uh, so they could produce their remake independently without infringing on uh, Marion C. Cooper's company or RKO. Um, eventually, after that, the uh, court came back and decided that uh, Marion C. Cooper did have copyright over the remaining elements of the story, which he then assigned over to uh, Universal eventually. And that's where you get a lot of that the dispute. His, that was yeah, his that son, was his son, just to, Richard. Yeah, to, just yeah. to clarify. Yeah, sorry. Yes. I mean, uh, cut you off. Sorry, the estate. Uh, my apologies. Um, so yes, and that was a, a later decision. And yeah, the King Kong, actually, I mean, in the RKO's counterclaim, which was a lawsuit that followed, which eventually determined that um, the court determined that there is no evidence that the title King Kong has a secondary meaning by the public identifying such title with RKO or the motion picture. So basically the court said King Kong exists outside of the movie. There's nothing that would make you think that King Kong was only a movie. And second, that King Kong had become part of the ordinary English language. So by then, you know, like uh, Bad, Bad Leroy Brown, like a bunch of other Things had come out that referenced King Kong. He had become a pop culture figure. And so you wouldn't be confused when you were making a movie that that King Kong was the 1933 King Kong. Right, right. So um, basically, what were those other rights that Cooper was uh, allotted then? Like, 
basically that's... the the irony is it's this weird thing where they say and any other rights and then the court later were like oh and those rights have been so diminished so it would be eventually like the book rights that were assigned and then any other rights that he had in the property that were outside of the novel or outside of the rest of the process but as you've highlighted there's not much left because you know They've already like toy manufacturing, etc. Could be rights, right. um, but again, like it wasn't clear that that's what he was assigning later. And the other problem with a lot of these are, and you'll probably get this when you when you deal with the universal element. If at any point throughout the whole thing, Paramount and Universal say, you know what, we're going to settle, then that is protected by settlement privilege, and it's difficult to get the terms of their settlement. So unless they publicly disclose and say, here's what money we got, here's what we did, here's what you're allowed to do, then you don't get to report or you don't have access to what they actually did. So under most of the articles that we're reading here, you probably are pulling from what the companies represented they got out of the deal. Right. So they, I think that, I don't think it was actually resolved. I think it was dropped. Like, I think I'm pretty sure Dino, from what I've seen, Dino actually kind of dropped the suit Mm -hmm. and he didn't want to drop the suit because uh, he was like pissed. Like Dino DeLorean just pissed about all this. And like he wanted to he pretty much knew he was going to win. And he was like suing for damages because this is all kind of like messing everything up. What happened is... um, Paramount and Universal had dealings that were outside of just North America. Basically, there was some European stuff that they were that they were doing with each other, and they didn't want to create this bad blood um, because they were going to release a movie that could have cost them millions of dollars. Uh, and they Paramount pretty much p- pressured uh, again. Obviously, uh, a lot of this will come out of one of the parties. There's nothing in the courts to say this. So, right. Who actually knows what happened? Um, but they convinced, you know, to settle uh, and, and just stopped. And they had joint business ventures. Um, so what happened is. The terms that we were given and the terms that were said in the the Ray Morton book, which is honestly uh, seems to be the definitive uh, definitive book. Um, I have read 20. Uh, let me tell you, it's the best one. Um, and what happened was um, they came to like a, a, a deal, which like uh, I'm really kind of surprised that this was what happened. Um, really, the something behind the doors of Universal and Paramount must have been going on and they really wanted to make this go away and be actually happy to them because Universal got a percentage of the profits, they got certain merchandising rights, and they got veto power over any sequel. They would postpone The Legend of King Kong, but they did have the rights to uh to do another kong film uh in the future i think there was like nine months like i I, the the amount of time that um eventually passed between uh when they could go and make another movie uh is a bit unclear but universal had the rights to 
pretty much make another version of King Kong in the future if they wanted to. And uh, it would appear that this is how the 2005 version of King Kong actually ended up being made, the Peter Jackson one, because they, they had this deal and the deal was, yes, you can make a, a, a King Kong movie of your own in the future. Didn't really state when, like they didn't have any time limits on that or time gaps in that. So in uh, in 2005, that's when they originally made it. They actually were planning Peter Jackson King Kong in the 90s. I think it was like 96 they were pre-planning a version of Peter Jackson's King Kong that didn't get made. Um, so they were really trying to, to do stuff with it. And they see, people seem to think, and it seems to be pretty logical, that the reason why King Kong Lives, which is the sequel to uh, 1976 King Kong, actually got made was... Because Universal was opening up a ride, so there was a ride called the the King the Confrontation, uh, where it's basically uh, like King Kong attacks a, a tram a tram ride, uh, and actually seeing the animatronics for that ride actually convinced Steven Spielberg to make Jurassic Park. Just so you know, kind of gave him some of the inspiration. But they they were going to release that, and um, it seemed pretty clear that King Kong lives was greenlit greenlit by them because they kind of wanted something to kind of advertise what they were doing that would cost them nothing. So they didn't have to put any money into it, but they had the okay. And it just, again, it just seems very weird to me that this is what eventually ended this entire debacle, basically. Um, and because of this debacle, though, we have a bevy of unofficial King Kong things that were made because Universal opened up the floodgates because they got all of this in writing and they got all of this to the court's attention that portions of King Kong were now in the public domain. The easiest way to tell what is in the public, if the story you're reading is a licensed King Kong from RKO or from Universal or whoever has the rights at that time, or if it is merely a version of the uh, the original novelization that was in public domain, as we've discussed, are, are some of the following differences. So in Kong's 33, the, uh, the ship is called the Venture. In... The novelization, it's called The Wanderer. So the ship's names are different. Denim is just called Denim. Because in the novelization, they don't use the name Kyle Denim. Denim did not have a first name. There you go. That's kind of weird. That's kind of weird. Uh, in the novelization, we have Newark, new characters including a man who has a monkey. There's a sailor with a monkey. And I only mention that because, oh my God, the unofficial musical version of King Kong, the animated musical called The Mighty Kong, has a terrible musical number and has that monkey that features very prominently in it. Um, as far as uh, some other stuff, there's, uh, you know, where characters will kiss what actually is the name of the island 
Um, in the Loveless novelization, it's referred to as Skull Mountain Island. So if they do Skull Mountain Island, probably not the official one. Skull Island is... It's never... So Skull Island is never used in the 1933 film. And it's I'm kind of, I've always kind of wondered where exactly Skull Mountain came from. Um, one of the uh, one of the things that I found um, that had Skull Mountain um, in it, um, sorry, Skull Island. They, they don't say call Skull, it Skull Mountain. Yes, they call it Skull Mountain in the original film. They don't call it Skull Island for sure. Right, but uh, sorry, the first instance of Skull Island I'm saying is yeah, yeah, is yeah. In, uh, is so there are the actual so. This story has been novelized or kind of adapted in many, many different ways. So there is, of course, what we're talking about with the mystery magazine version. There was also a um, a serialized news story um, that featured uh, the King Kong and talked about King Kong and we we kind of told the story uh, uh, of King Kong, um, and that was in the London Daily Herald, where they did kind of um, you know it, there was uh, for a number of uh, weeks they would kind of go and they would tell short snippets of King Kong, but they would do it in a newspaper style. It's a very interesting style. Um, and you can actually find these if you if you look up the uh, London Daily Herald archives. They actually have all of this archived online. Um, and that has the word Skull Island in it. Uh, not clear if that's the very first version of it, but that is one of the earliest versions that was printed and made in 1933 that actually had uh, the use of Skull Island. Um, but there's another number of, uh, of other little differences um, that you can kind of tell, but usually the big ones are, you know, the name of Denim, the Wanderer versus the Venture, uh, and that pretty much can tell you right off the the, the bat. Um, it's funny because uh, all King Kong shows, except for the one that was made in the uh, the the mid '60s, which is the King Kong show, that was actually licensed. So that was licensed by RKO. And would be eventually become the um, movies King Kong Escapes uh, was an adaptation of that. Uh, the King Kong Escape was another Japanese version oh, of that's with the Kong. Mecha King Kong. Right? Yes, with oh, Mechani yes, Kong. Yes, yeah, good old Mechani Kong. But there was also uh, it, it, there was also Kong the animated series from two thousand. Uh, that one was one of the ones that was not not done with uh, the actual rights. It was using that public domain. Um, then another, then they made two movies of that Kong King of Atlantis. Oh, wow. That's a fun way to <laughs> get, get around that. <laughs> and Kong Return to the jungle. There is a movie called, uh, there's actually a thing on Netflix There's a Netflix series. That's like a CG Netflix series called Kong king of the apes uh if you notice something here uh it's the titling very interesting um and it seems um likely to me that the uh new 2013 i guess that's not new at all um the king kong musical does 
seem to be based off of um, the novelization. It's kind of hard to tell um, because um, the press book says it's gone back to the source, the novella of the original film. But I've not actually seen this play to kind of go gorgeous other things. And uh, not a whole lot of other people have either. <laughs> it didn't make it to Broadway, but uh, it's kind of hard to talk to somebody who's actually seen this play. So I'm not exactly sure what the rights rightsness of that is. But that's kind of where the 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 rights of Kong kind of stand. Um, and I guess, uh, Adam, was there anything we kind of missed and we kind of didn't, didn't really talk about that you wanted to bring up? How did that, how did that King Kong, the Donkey Kong, uh, thing? So the Donkey Kong one's really interesting because it had a really negative effect on, um, copyright in some ways, uh, depending on how you see it. Um, Jason might actually be in favor of it in some ways, um, because it, uh, Donkey Kong, um, the courts ended up finding, and there were two applications that were held um, separately. The first one they found wasn't successful, and it was launched uh, in a different, um, with different facts and different parties, and then relaunched. Um, so there was an injunction basically to stop the production of uh, Donkey Kong, uh, the game. And then after that, there was an actual case to determine damages. Um, the court ended up finding that um, Nintendo had not infringed any copyright uh, for the same reason that you've highlighted. It's Donkey Kong. It has almost no connection outside of it is a ape that carries a woman up a series of construction girders. Um, and so they, the court ended up finding um, like punitary damages, which... Um, are pretty severe and it's basically when you assign money that a company has to pay for even having the gall to bring such an action um, or to like abuse the process, basically trying to uh, frustrate Nintendo's ability to make the game by bringing this lawsuit. And so that has uh, its own long-term effects because if I'm a copyright holder, I might be more concerned with bringing frivolous actions in court to try and stop uh, a company that's clearly producing another product that doesn't have a strong enough association in the market. Um, so, you know, it could have been more successful if it was like a Donkey Kong movie that was very similar in plot, but clearly it being a game that had very different uh, spheres, the trademark is the, the major issue because you wouldn't associate Donkey Kong with King Kong other than the fact that Kong is in the name. That so, makes yeah. sense. That makes sense. Yeah, it was a it was a lot of money. It was like a million hundred and forty two thousand in legal fees alone. So that's just what the lawyers got paid. Wow. Uh, then the punitive damages are two hundred twenty two thousand four hundred ninety eight, which is a lot also just right. for punishing them. And then the damages associated, um, there was eighty three thousand in Nintendo uh, for vicarious copyright infringement. Um, cause they were trying to tie the stuff to King Kong cause there was cross claims between the two parties. So yeah, um, all of that is to say, uh, I think ultimately, um, Nintendo didn't receive the full, they were asking for 4.76 million. Um, and they didn't find that they were entitled to that, but there was, you know, an, a ridiculous amount of money that was paid out just for suing. 
Right, right. So that that's fascinating. And also, is not so the extension of copyright. I'm pretty sure that Kong 33 is about to enter the public domain as a film. Soon. Soon. There's because been, yeah. I, I know that the, some of the other Universal films, like the Universal Monster films, because I know uh, Dracula and Frankenstein, um, which are both 1931, are about to enter the public domain as well. Um, and they're on the bird. So I, I don't know if there is there any talk about them trying to do another one of those bullshit extensions or, or what? It's possible that there might be an extension in the States. One of the things that tends to happen is where the copyright is located. So one interesting thing is like Winnie the Pooh's copyright's about to come up in Canada, but not in the States um, because of Disney's characterization. So I could make a Winnie the Pooh style property. The issue is I couldn't have Winnie the Pooh with his distinctive red shirt and like yellow body. I would have to go with the book. Um, I would have to go with the description from the book, but not the artist's drawing because those are two separate, uh, issues. So the drawings still have copyright, but the book if I just want to make, this is Winnie the Pooh. He's a bear. He wears a purple hat. It's true. There you yeah. go. There you go. So anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's my knowledge about Winnie the Pooh. Hey, I mean, you know, he goes wow. for honey like Kong goes for blondes. Um, Jason, any final thoughts or any final observations? I thought, well, I thought it might be fun. At the, at the back of the Ray Morton book, there's a list of Kong properties that went into production that never took place so i thought it might be fun maybe to go through a few of those um yeah. and just talk about yeah. them a no. little bit um for sure some... for sure um, um so... kong kong unmade uh the book that i was talking about uh they also have like a really good compilation cool. of of those if you're looking for like more full script breakdowns because uh there's a little bit more than uh, would just be the little brief stuff that Morden has. But, yeah, Morden uh, has awesome. a quick blurb. Um, but in some of these, I'm going to go through quickly. Some are more interesting than others, I think, for our purposes. But um, like the first one's The Lost Island, which is 1934, which is basically like a technical parody of King Kong. Um, yep. That that really never finished production. So I don't think that that's as interesting. But maybe well. Like, it is interesting because you know who was uh, involved in doing those uh, monster suits. Rick Baker, right? No, Wa Chang. Oh, Wait, Wa Chang. Rick Baker. Oh. Rick, Rick Baker. I don't even think was alive then. <laughs> he was uh, very. But uh, Wa Chang, who uh, oh yeah, this is thirty four. Yeah, yeah. So who molded the uh, puppets in Jack the Giant Slayer? Oh, nice, nice, nice. And also the Gorn. So the Gorn. Love the Gorn. Um, the New Adventures of King Kong, 1934, um, which is basically um, Cooper wanted to make another sequel after The Son of Kong. Um, but um, basically what happened with that is that uh, Shuzak thought that they'd really just run the concept dry, which is really funny that in 34 he thought that Kong was done at that point. Well, I, I think I think one of the, the other issues is that uh, they probably were pretty worried about uh, how they would get O'Brien at that point because... Uh, Whew, Son of Kong was not a good time for O'Brien, and a year yeah. after, probably still not a good year for O'Brien. Yeah. Um, then we have, in 1952, The Eighth Wonder, right? Um, and that's basically... Oh, uh, there you go. That's, that's the Cinerama one. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's the one that follows the 52 reissue of Kong, right? Right. With Cinerama yep, yep, yep. and O'Brien, yep. Um, and then... Oh, you know, actually, sorry, you know that you, you, you mentioned that, that, that 
52 reissue. Yeah. Um, I've, I've seen that credited with uh, what really started restarted the monster boom in the in the 50s, which I didn't even think about because in 53 you got um, the uh, oh beast from 20,000 fathoms, the beast from 20,000 fathoms, which Ray Harryhausen yeah. and then a whole string of uh, of monster movies started uh, from that. So. Yeah, so um in speaking of, you know, monster films, now you have the two um almost made Hammer Kong films which um never took place. Um, I that's a shame. That's a shame cuz apparently Ray Harryhausen was supposed to do some stuff on that. Yeah, that's what the second one, the one from 1970 they approached. With Chris Armelius Kong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, to be honest, to be honest, if they were if they were actually going to do someone in a suit, they would probably use Peter Mayhew, who uh, would become Chewbacca, because he was in a bunch of those. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then the 1974, Jim Danforth was going to make a Kong movie, um, and that really get gets um, really got broken down by these um, rights issues we were kind of talking about as well. Um, and then, of course, 76, you have The Legend of King Kong, which was going to be, you know, the uh, Dino De Laurentiis uh, film that never happened, you know? Uh, you mean the opposite of that? The universal one. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, yes. I'm sorry. Excuse me. The universal film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 And then there was so, the yeah. Roger Corman film. You know. Yep. Yep. The good old the good old Corman was just going to make a cheapie because he saw that everyone was fighting over the rights. Which honestly, that's that's peak Corman Roger right there. Corman, baby. Yeah. And, yep. and man, at like the '70s, man, I bet you that would be a fun, stupid movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, of course, um, we have a couple um, – they wanted to do in 91. Toho wanted to do a uh, King Kong versus Godzilla. Um, and then there was also a Godzilla versus Mechanic Kong in 94 that almost happened. Um, yeah. Yep. And, and then in 1990, um, Andrew's favorite filmmaker of all time, um, famous father, famous um, safe uh, director, John Landis. <laughs> Um, oh, fucking John Landis. Uh, 1990 King Kong film. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was also that that early uh, Peter Jackson one as well that was kind of happening wearing that. It's kind of funny because there was like also a remake of uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon that was going to be made by um, Landis that also got lampooned and the stolen by jaws 3d right because there's that whole right. story of like yes uh, of, of jaws that jaws uh they brought the idea of 3d and they're like oh wow 3d wow let's put in our jaws movie fuck this guy <laughs> fuck, fuck you right fuck decision. you correct <laughs> the one time we're on the side of the uh studios <laughs> exactly adam yes where can we find you on the internet uh, well, you can check me out uh, at Attorney at Space on uh, Twitter. Um, sometimes I do a podcast. It's pretty rare, but uh, it's called Space Lawyers Podcast, and it's it's walloping fun. I also do a show uh, with friend of the show, uh, Thor, Thor's Hour of Thunder. I, I don't know if his real name's on this show, so I'm going to be careful. Um, but definitely check out that show, because it's okay. Jason. Where can we find you on the world wide web? Uh, I do my own show, Moments of Madness, which both of these fellas have been on, um, where I talk about television and social issues. Um, I also do a music podcast with my daughter. You know? Um, Aww. 
Yeah, yeah, called uh, Generation Into Nation. Uh, that's a lot of fun. We were listened to albums from our freshman year of high school in succession. So you can check that out. Um, you can follow me on Twitter if you want to. You know, bad attitude on Twitter. Nice, nice. If you enjoy this podcast, you can email us at milkshakesandmimosas at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @winemovienerd. And for all other things, you can check our Patreon, which is milkshakes and mimosas. Thank you, and have a great day. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.